A couple of days ago, I mentioned that the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path can be grouped into these three sets, three broad areas of our lives, being ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom. And so far, we've spent quite a bit of time exploring two of the three meditative factors of right mindfulness and right concentration. So tonight, I'd like to focus a bit more on the third of these three meditative factors, which is right effort. And even though right effort is traditionally classified as a meditative factor, it also comes into play with every other factor of the path before it. Because as I'm sure you've all noticed, it takes effort to keep paying attention, to keep noticing what's going on, takes effort to let go of what's not helpful and to strengthen what is helpful. So this role of effort in relation to the preceding path factors is stated very clearly in a sutta in the Majjhima where it says, one tries to abandon wrong view and to enter into right view. This is one's right effort. One tries to abandon wrong resolve and enter into right resolve. This is one's right effort. One tries to abandon wrong speech and to enter into right speech. This is one's right effort. One tries to abandon wrong action and to enter into right action. This is one's right effort. One tries to abandon wrong livelihood and to enter into right livelihood. This is one's right effort. So in many ways, then, the right effort is the bridge between the ethical components of the path, in other words, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and the meditative components of right mindfulness and right concentration. And I just want to uh, highlight this link between sila, or ethical conduct, and samadhi, or meditation, Again, because as I said the other night, I think in the way the practice has come to the West, we mostly think of meditation as affecting our daily life and not so much the other way around. And But it's important to see how our daily life affects our meditation because a meditation practice doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not sealed off from the rest of our lives and if we really want to help deepen and refine it we also need to help deepen and refine our conduct in the world so for example uh, Joseph Goldstein talked about how his teacher Manindraji when he came to the US uh, back in I think the late 70s or maybe the early 80s not long after IMS first opened Manindraji came to uh, teach a retreat and Joseph asked him what his impression was of all of these new Western meditators. And apparently Munindraji said he was impressed by their efforts, by their dedication to getting enlightened, but that their efforts were undermined by a lack of understanding of ethical behavior. And he said it was like watching people trying to row their boat across the river, putting lots of energy into rowing and rowing and rowing, but not actually untying their boat from the dock. So we get the sense from that image that there's a little bit of wasted effort there 
unless we have more attention to how we're living in the world, our efforts in our meditation are not going to reach their full potential. So this is how Gil Fransdahl describes the relationship between the ethical factors and the meditation factors. He says, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration are the factors of the path that address our inner activities, what we do with our minds and hearts. This focus is distinct from the emphasis on verbal and physical activities in the three preceding factors of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Attention to and care with our outward actions prepares us to do the same for our inner mental actions. As with other factors on the path, what guides this care is the intention to avoid causing harm and to engage in what is beneficial for ourselves and others. But before I go any further with this exploration of right effort, I'd just like to, again, as we did the other night, just take a moment to pause and to notice if there is a particular, we could say, reaction or response to this phrase, right effort. Because as I mentioned the other night, sometimes this, uh, just hearing about right effort can bring up all kinds of conditioning. So sometimes when people hear about right effort, they start to think, oh no, here we go. This is some kind of performance review. She's probably giving that talk because she thinks I'm not trying hard enough. But all this talk about effort, it's actually, it's quite exhausting. Maybe I'll just skip the last sitting and have an early night tonight. Whereas for other people, their response might be more like, finally, we get to the real practice. Enough of all this fluffy kindness and compassion stuff. There's only three days left, so I'm going to try really hard now. No more naps for me. I'm going to um, try and sleep for only four hours tonight like they do in Burma. (laughs) And for other people, there might not be much response at all. So if that's you, that's great. You can cultivate equanimity for the rest of the talk. So whether or not you recognized any flavors of those responses, just uh, to bookmark that as possibly useful information to come back to later. Because this word effort can bring up all kinds of views and self-views. And if we don't see them, they're often driving our practice quite unconsciously in ways that might not be too helpful. So a big part of the art of meditation is learning how to apply our energy and effort in a balanced and skillful way. Remembering this framing of all of the Buddha's teachings in terms of the middle way. And yet, as I touched into, I think, in about the second talk on this retreat, finding this midpoint between uh, too much effort and not enough effort can be surprisingly difficult. And I think partly because our dominant mainstream culture is one of competitiveness and perfectionism and striving and busyness. Often when we hear this phrase of right effort, it very, very easily triggers a sense of judgment of not good enough, should try harder. And I use my own example of 
Early on in my practice, every time I heard right effort, I would just think blood, sweat, and tears. That was what right effort meant. Which, of course, as I hope you all know now, is a, a big misunderstanding. So really paying attention to the right part of right effort as much as the effort part is crucial. So this... Uh, kind of a joke about the superhero to slug syndrome, that swinging from one extreme to the other, which as we see uh, is often rooted in fear, fear of failure. And the key if we do see any of these patterns is not to get caught in self-judgment because that only uses up more energy in a counterproductive way. And it's quite normal and natural that all of us have these different ways that we get out of balance. So some of you may be familiar with the analogy of the lute that appears in the Buddha's teachings. Apparently there was a monk who before he had became a monk had been a lute player. And after he was practicing for some time, he wasn't making much progress. So it said he went to the Buddha to ask him for advice And the Buddha said to him, well, when you played the lute, if you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings very tight? And of course, the answer is no. And then he asked the opposite question. Well, then, if you want a good sound, did you tune the strings too loose? And again, the answer is no. We need to tune the strings just right to find that midpoint between too tight and too loose. And I appreciate that analogy because it really highlights the importance of listening. Listening to our own bodies, to our hearts, to our minds, and to our outer circumstances. To recognize in this situation what is too tight and what is too loose. Because just like with an instrument, that will be constantly changing. We don't tune the lute once and then put it aside and that's it for the rest of our lives. Everything is constantly changing, so we have to keep retuning it. And what's appropriate effort right now in this sitting may be very different from the first sitting in the morning or at the end of the retreat or when you're back in daily life or if you're sick or if you're injured. So again, that paying attention to our own circumstances is really important. So this is the general um, view of right effort. And in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, it also has a more uh, more specific definition in terms of what, what are known as the four great efforts. So if you thought right effort was bad enough, now we've got four great efforts. But bear with me, because... you'll get a sense that they too have their own balance. And I'd like to read you the words from the actual sutta because even though the language is quite complicated and it does take a bit of effort to understand it, I think it it picks up on some nuances that are interesting. So when the Buddha was asked to define right effort, he said, here... A person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind, and strives to restrain the arising of unarisen, 
unwholesome mental states. In other words, to prevent the hindrances from arising. And then it continues. Here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind and strives to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen. So if the hindrances do come up, we make effort to abandon them. And then the third one here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind and strives to develop unarisen wholesome mental states. So this third effort is to try and bring wholesome states into being. And then the last one here, a person rouses his or her will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his or her mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So you might have noticed that the first two of these efforts are to do with unskillful mind states and the last two are to do with skillful mind states. So Gil Fronsdell summarizes them as being, as being the effort to prevent and the effort to overcome unskillful states and the effort to arouse or the effort to maintain skillful states. He says, in this practice of right effort, we utilize these four efforts to safeguard and develop the quality of our mind and heart. The quality of our inner life is our most important asset and it deserves our utmost care. When we see clearly that unskillful mental states decrease the quality of our inner life, it's natural to want to either prevent these states from arising or, if they're already there, to find a way to derail them. And when we understand that there are things that we can do to increase the quality of our inner life, it's healthy and makes sense to do so. In this way, the quality of our inner life can be improved. So the first one, the effort to prevent, is uh, sometimes done through what's traditionally known as guarding the sense doors or guarding the sense gates. So a few days ago, we did that practice together of naming anything that we were aware of out loud at any of the sense doors. Sight, sound, smells, tastes and physical sensations. And I asked you to name these without any kind of reactivity. No story or assessment or analysis or judgment. And that's a way of training in this quality of non-reactivity, which of course is very different from our usual way of relating to experience where, as I've been emphasizing, if it's pleasant, we get pulled in. If it's unpleasant, we get repelled. If it's neutral, we space out. So sometimes, where possible, to protect this pushing and pulling, it can be helpful to practice this guarding of the sense doors. So a simple example I sometimes give in daily life if I was trying to 
restrain my addiction to chocolate and a new Swiss chocolate shop opened up on the way to work and I had to walk past it every day, it might be a good idea to change the route that I walked, at least until the addiction had kind of damped down to a more manageable level, just to really save myself the the trouble. And here on retreat, we are already practicing a lot of sense restraint through the renunciation, the simplicity of just surrendering to the schedule and accepting the food that's offered and giving up your technology and many, many different forms of renunciation that help simplify and um, guard us from getting caught in the usual kinds of distractions and proliferations. But even on retreat, when the mind is quiet, we sometimes see how relatively simple things pull us off balance. So an example I use again from my own practice, quite a few years ago now when I was doing a longer retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, and I got into the routine of going for a walk every day after lunch. And after a few days, I noticed that when I would go back into the hall in the afternoon for the sitting, my state of mind was a little bit irritable and frustrated and uncomfortable. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but this happened many days in a row. So I had the opportunity to investigate it. And I started to look back over well, what happened before lunch. And I realized that Every time I came back to the hall, I walked through the parking lot, the car park. And because this was in America, almost all the cars had American license plates with different slogans on them. So, for example, New Hampshire's is live free or die. And so I would walk past this row of license plates and just feel this sense of alienation. And I'm a foreigner and I don't belong here and I'm lone and so on, lonely and, and then by the time I got back to the hall, all of this was just sort of percolating below the radar and I would sit down with this uncomfortable mind state. But once I saw what was happening and I recognized the trigger, it was very simple. I just walked a different route back to the hall. So this is not to say that we shouldn't ever feel lonely or it's wrong or bad to be triggered or whatever, but just in the service of maintaining a calm, clear mind on retreat, it can be helpful to minimize unnecessary triggers. And of course, we can't always do that. And even if we could, sometimes the hindrances come into play anyway. And one of the things I appreciate about the Buddha's teachings is his realistic, his realism or his realisticness, his pragmatism. So the first effort is to prevent the hindrances arising, but the second one is if they come up, release them. So he knew that even though we make this first effort, sometimes unskillful states do arise. And so hence the second great effort is to abandon, to overcome, to release these five hindrances. Just as a reminder, desire for sense pleasure, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. And although these five hindrances are presented as separate, separate categories, you might have noticed 
in your own experience that they don't often show up conveniently just one at a time. Actually, often they seem to hunt in packs and we end up with what's referred to as a multiple hindrance attack. Sounds like some of you might recognize that. So the first stage in helping these hindrances to release is to recognize them with as little reactivity as possible. Otherwise, we're just feeding more aversion. So the other night, I mentioned the analogy of training a puppy. You know, if we want the puppy to stay and to sit, we have to just very patiently keep inviting it to come back. If we whack it every time it runs away, after some period of time, it probably won't come back at all. So this attitude of kindness is really fundamental. And so in service of that, the other night I mentioned Rob Berbea's reframing of the hindrances as manifestations of our humanity. To see that they're universal, they're not personal, they're not our unique shortcomings, they just arise due to causes and conditions and they pass due to causes and conditions. So kindness, recognizing them, and sometimes, um, as I mentioned briefly to Renata's question the other day, making more space for them, creating a bigger container. So this idea of the mantra of ABC, ABC stands for making a bigger container. And it's that counter move to the contraction that we usually experience when we encounter something unpleasant. So whether it's an unpleasant thought, emotion, mood, mind state, one of the hindrances, usually it's, ugh, and we tighten up in some way, which usually makes it worse. So the invitation, if you can remember, as soon as you feel that clamping down, the mantra ABC, make a bigger container. And we can do this physically by literally sitting up straighter, and perhaps opening the shoulders and breathing deeply and making more space in the body. If it's really intense, we might even open our eyes and look around the room or connect with the sky to metaphorically stimulate that sense of more space. The idea with this, the analogy is it's a little bit like if you have a wild horse and you put it in a small corral it goes crazy and the energy is very intense. But if you let that same horse out into a bigger field, its energy is the same, but because it's in more space, it doesn't feel quite as intense. So ABC is just that invitation to make space, to create a bigger container whenever you feel that some contraction around the hindrances. Then if the hindrance continues, we might need to consciously go in the opposite direction and to apply an antidote of some kind. So for example, in terms of right intention, right thought, when we're getting caught in a lot of ill will, we might deliberately try to cultivate goodwill or metta instead. So coming back to the four great efforts, When we do this, we're moving to the third great effort, 
which is about developing skillful mind states. Here, a person rouses his or her will and makes an effort to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. So again, just to notice that two of these four great efforts are about skillful states. And one way that we can frame or understand these skillful mental states is in terms of, sorry, yet another list, the seven factors of awakening. So we have these five hindrances on one side of the scale that are unhelpful, unskillful states of mind. But fortunately, on the other side of the scale, we have these seven factors of awakening. And the good news is there are seven of them and five of the others. So we're working in our favor. And these seven factors of awakening are very briefly mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And there's a lot in there, and I'll be talking more about them tomorrow night. But just for tonight, to say that these skillful qualities of heart and mind are really where all of these Satipatthana Sutta trainings are leading. Because when the awakening factors are present, by definition, there's no room for the hindrances. And the other way too, when the hindrances are there, the awakening factors can't come in. So the Effort in the practice is to keep releasing the hindrances and strengthening the awakening factors. And when the awakening factors have arisen, the fourth great effort is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So when these awakening factors are all equally well developed, this is when the deepest insights can occur, the most powerfully transformative insights that lead to freedom of heart and mind. So I think I may have mentioned already that um, these great efforts are really pointing to the fact that our mindfulness practice is not just about passively being with our experience. So I think, again, as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, one of the ways it's often presented is just be with your experience. Don't try to change it anyway. Just be with it, just be with it, just be with it. And this is true for the first three foundations of mindfulness in the Buddha's teachings. So mindfulness of the body, of feeling tone, and of the mind, in those three foundations, we are instructed to know the body as the body, feeling tone as feeling tone, mental states as mental states. That's all. But when it comes to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is where the hindrances and the awakening factors appear, then we're invited to do something about our experience. As we see here with the four great efforts, If it's unskillful, abandon it. Prevent it from coming up in the first place. If it's skillful, help it to arise and then develop it. So here we really are about um, getting more involved with our experience and steering it in a helpful direction. 
The good news, though, is that as we progress through these four efforts, in many ways the task becomes easier. We start to overcome the more, more gross levels of the hindrances. They become more subtle, more refined. There's more space for the awakening factors to come into play. And overall, the te- we need to make less uh, intense effort. So there's a, a sutta in relation to this that I've uh, shared in the Noble Eightfold Path course, but I'd like to share again here because I think it, um, for me anyway, it um, offered a sense of relief because when I hear about these four great efforts, you know, sometimes there's still just that lingering sense of, oh, it's hard work. But in this sutta, we get a sense of the possibility of ease. It comes from the same sutra I shared earlier, the, it's hard to say, Dveda Vitaka Sutta, two kinds of thoughts. And that's the one with the well-known statement, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. And then it goes on from there to use an analogy comparing mindfulness of the mind to a cow herder keeping watch over his cows. And it says, just as in the last month of the rains, in the autumn season when the crops are ripening, a cow herd would look after his cows. He would tap and poke and check and curb them with a stick on this side and that. Why is that? Because he foresees flogging or imprisonment or a fine or public censure arising from that if he let his cows wander into the crops. In the same way, I foresaw in unskillful qualities drawbacks, degradation and defilement, and I foresaw in skillful qualities rewards related to renunciation and promoting cleansing. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been gathered into the village, a cowherd would, would lack after his cows. While resting under the shade of a tree or out in the open, he see, simply keeps himself mindful of, quote, those cows. In the same way, I simply kept myself mindful of, quote, those mental qualities. So the idea is that when the... Um, there's a lot of danger for the cows. We do need to tap and poke and prod and keep um, channeling them, steering them in the right direction. But when the mind states have become more skillful, the amount of energy required is a lot less and we can just rest in the shade of a tree knowing, okay, there are cows, those cows. So those are the cows that might be the awakening factors. So when those are starting to come into play, we can just notice, okay, skillful states are here. So I'd like to uh, finish here and just um, perhaps if there are any questions, otherwise we can sit in silence for a few minutes and let the words digest. Thank you for your effort in listening. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.